Listener Production. Hi, I'm journalist and producer Chris Walker, and this is season two of my podcast, Brains Trust. What you're about to hear is some of Australia's most interesting, funny and complex people having what I am grandiosely calling a tapestry of conversation. I hope their reactions and responses to the reality of life in 2021 help you rethink, reassess and even reimagine your own year. The Brains Trustees this season include... G'day, my name's Tommy Little. My name's Jamila. I'm Abby Chatfield. I'm Charlie Pickering. I am Samantha Armitage. I am Rob Reed. You've got Tony Armstrong here. We were just talking off air and you said I'm Australia's newest, most loved TV personality in breakfast hours. I said that. Yeah, 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 you did. That doesn't sit comfortably with me. (laughs) (laughs) Together, they are the ultimate dinner party conversation and we've saved you a seat at the table as we discuss the events, news and circumstances of our world from different perspectives. That is a really complex question. That's an interesting question. That's a really tricky question. Oh, hang on, let me think about how I felt about that. Today's episode is about family. The importance of family is difficult to encapsulate. Michael J. Fox once put it simply, family is everything. And he would know, he was Alex on Family Ties. Another big family man, Shane Warne, once famously said, your mum's your mum. Broadcaster and former AFL player Tony Armstrong agrees. She's the best. Um, What's mum's name? Margaret. Margaret Ann Armstrong is her name. Um, So she brought me up as a single mother. So I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, the old man at all. No, never met him. His name's William Coleman. Sick name, but William Coleman. Never very white. <laughs> I know it is a white, but there's a lot of colonial names in uh, in uh, the indigenous in you know the indigenous communities, just because I guess um, the stolen generations yeah. and basically the whitewashing. We were very good at that. Actually, so good. Mm. Mint at it. Mm. Um, so, Dad, what happened? Where did Dad go? Uh, so he took off on mum when mum was pregnant. Um, sucks, right? And like I've only sort of in the last few years started like really trying to reconnect, not with him but with my mob um, because that's something that's really important to me but I, I never felt ready to. And mum's just been an absolute saint. Is it just you? Yeah, just mum and I. So it's intense. We've got a very intense relationship in that, like she, I'm everything to her, and I'm I'm I, I know that, um, and I love her, and I want nothing but the best for her, and she's just like the sacrifices she made to get me to assumption to you know imagine being a single mum on your own with like the love of your life, your son, and rather than keeping him there. You send him away to boarding school. That's in to bravery. That's it's amazing. And then being like a dickhead teenager, I'm like, oh, you know, I've got all these new friends that I've just made. I want to go hang out with them all the time, not realizing how much that would hurt your mum, or how much that did hurt my mum. Um, and that's just like growing up, you know. Of course, your mum's a loser until you realize yeah. until, until you work out she's not. She's she's actually the best. the best. Yeah. And why are you uninterested in finding your old man? In the last couple of years, I've become interested in finding him to connect with my mob. But um, not him directly. I I couldn't give a rat's. I think I think it'd be actually I'd probably like to do it just to say I've done it, but it's not about 
not about me getting to know him, I don't think, because it, it, it will be very hard for me to reconcile with him not being there, A, for me, but B, for Your mom. my mum. Yeah. So do you hate him? I think I do. Like, obviously, I'll sit down if if he'll sit down with me and I'll I'll hear him out. And, you know, he might have been going through some really cook shit as well. And you've got to have some empathy for someone who who makes a decision that they might regret. That that said, it's he's kind of coming from a fair way back. Yeah. Yeah, like... Like the stall gift. Yeah, like Kathy 96, 97 yeah. stall gift. That was great. My favourite video is to put on when I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you... Look what, how far back she is, yeah. man. No, you're, not, you're not watching properly. She can't even... We're, guys, pause... <laughs> We've got 200 metres to go and she's still 350 metres away. (laughs) Reality star and podcaster Abby Chatfield also has a dad who's coming from a long way back. My dad left when I was born, so it's a big topic in therapy. But yeah, so it's like I have a very anxious attachment style. I don't know if you know about attachment styles in relationships. So basically there are four attachment styles. It's anxious, avoidant, anxious, avoidant, and then secure. So secure is like normal people which I haven't met one yet. Um, mm. Then there's anxious, which is like me, which is like the classic like needy, need reassurance. Um, you know, you're insecurely attached to someone. Then there's avoidant, which is the people that I usually try to date because they recreate my father's absence. So they're, they're very standoffish. They don't give me very much. I have to like fight for their affection. Therefore, when I get their affection, I feel like I've fixed something. Then there's anxious avoidant or fearful avoidant, which is um, where you're like the both, both extremes and anxious and avoidant um, are both just deep fears of rejection and abandonment. So people who are avoidant and don't really engage in relationships and are fiercely independent are just terrified of being left, but they, they manifest it in the opposite way that I do, which is I try to do things for people and try to, you know, make sure I'm, I understand that I'm still wanted and still loved. Um, so I always date people who are avoidant or don't give me very much, but which we're working on in therapy. It's not, it's not going very well, but we're, we're, we're aware of it. Do you speak to your dad ever? No. I was raised by a single mum who's amazing, but he, um, I haven't seen him that I remember. Mum said that I did see him once when I was like three or something, but I don't remember. Um, and then when I was like 21, I got really drunk on like a Father's Day and I had him on Facebook and he would message me every year my birthday and I would be like, fuck off. Like, you don't know me. And he'd be like, I'm so proud of you. And it's like, well, you didn't do anything to help with my upbringing. Like, my mum is an absolute, like, angel. Like, Saint, yeah. Yes. Like, she's a year one teacher, so she's like a mummy. You know what I mean? Mm. So, like, you left my mum with no money and two kids and a Saint Bernard. Like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> and I abused him. Um, when I was really, like probably the drunkest I've been um, on Father's Day, I like DM'd him like this aggressive message. And then he called my mom and they hadn't spoken, I think, since I was like 18 because of like child support, which he barely paid as well. And um, he said, why have you been lying to the girls about me leaving them? Mum was like, I haven't been lying. You weren't here. Like, like, what do you, like this a classic, like I would say narcissistic behavior of my, like my mom, we never even spoke about my dad. Like my mom would, didn't speak poorly of my dad, but we also didn't speak about him. Like it was just like, it didn't exist, mm. which like mom wasn't there being vindictive or like mom didn't say, oh, your father's horrible. She never said anything. About she was just getting on with it. 
Yeah, like there's no point sitting here romanticising him or villainizing him when he obviously was just a dickhead. Like, mum, like, <laughs> like just a dickhead, a dickhead man who left his family. Um, and yeah, so he had a go at her and said that she was lying to us, my sister and I, when it's like, well, mum's like, I'm not hiding birthday cards. Like, you haven't tried to talk to them. So yeah, we don't, we don't talk, but I have him on Facebook, which is really weird. And my half sisters who are older than me, who are also his kids, um, sometimes send me photos of him and I just don't reply. I'm not necessarily trying to join dots here, but listening mm. to your podcasts and stuff. Do you do you think men are selfish? No, not 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 as not as a whole. I think there is no. I think that's a, no. That's not a blanket term that I agree with, but I do think that society can allow men to be selfish and encourage encourage them to have avoidant attachment styles. Um, by saying by have, saying things like you can't talk about your emotions, you shouldn't let people in, you know, not allowing a vulnerability, I think encourages an avoidant attachment style. And I think that women are encouraged to have, as a whole, an anxious attachment style. This is not researched, obviously. This is just my thought about my relationships and my friends' relationships yep. that I observe. I think everyone's selfish inherently, really. I think at the end of the day, unfortunately, everyone just cares about themselves. Doesn't sound like your mum does. No, Laura doesn't. The idea of selfishness intrigues me. We have evolved to be selfish, but we have also prospered primarily because we're social animals. Family is very much a necessity. I put these ideas to one of the most social animals I know, comedian Tommy Little. The job I do is inherently so selfish that I do feel like I put in the least amount of effort and I should do more with my family. But, yeah, I love them. They're the funniest people. I mean, my brother is the funniest person I've ever met in my life. Is he older or younger? <laughs> he's older. I'm the accident. He's seven years older. He, he wanted to do a, um, a, a stand-up show where he just, uh, just walks out and he has uh, two four-litre things of milk on, the, on a desk, like on the, on the stage, on the table, and he wanted to walk out in a grey, light grey suit and for one minute, just say to the crowd, nothing up the sleeves, nothing up the sleeves. While pulling down his sleeves to reveal that there was nothing up the sleeves, and then <laughs> slowly grab one of the jugs of milk and pour it down the sleeve of one, and down the sleeve of the other, and just go, "Thank you." So is he a comedian? Off. Nah, nah. This but was he wanted this to be his only gig, just a one, and the only thing he ever did. I would love to have a family one day. I'd love to have, get married, have a family. But the reality at the moment is, and I've realised from recent relationships and them not working, is that if I want to tour every week and work as much as I do, it's, that's a hard thing to do. And at some stage I'm going to have to, if I actually really do want a family and want, and want that stuff, I'm going to have to make room for it and for another person. And I keep battling with that. Is it just that though? What do you mean? I'm not lying to you. No, no, I understand that. (laughs) Do you, if you really wanted it, would the compromise be so hard? I mean, this is like saying um, when you find love, you'll know. Mm. That I just, I don't think leaving, the older I get, I don't think leaving those things up to the universe is. Oh, no, don't leave it up to the fucking universe. (laughs) But that's what that sounds like to me. Does it? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you think you want something, you should proactively 
make steps. But aren't to, you the one that's waiting for the universe? What do you mean? I'm saying, don't you need to be proactive about it? Oh, I thought I was saying that. Are We're we both saying, saying that. <laughs> so you want to have a family. Mm-hmm. I love <clears> kids, man. I'd love to have kids. Oh, mate, you'd be an awesome dad. So at the moment, you feel like your work is an encumbrance on having a family? Yeah, I think so. I, well, and I think just my, my selfish lifestyle. Is it selfish? My lifestyle? Yeah. You don't think so? That doesn't really occur to me as being selfish. I mean, you're not... You work really hard. I don't think people would see that. I think people, for the most part, would see Tommy Little and he's just like having a laugh and having fun. But I think you're working enormously hard. In fact, I, why do you work so hard? I think you're the one person to ever say that, and that's very nice to hear. Thank you. Because um, I, love, I love doing what I do. It's great. It's also, I mean, I have un, unhealthy... Um, Obsessions with every with most things in this life, and I'm I just got addicted to stand up very early, and was just like, let's just do it as much as we can. So there's no end goal. It's just that you love it and you're addicted. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's an end goal. I think I will be that old comic who's doing shitty gigs at an RSL. Mm. You know, I'll, when be, I'm I'll, I'll be punting in the other room. <laughs> yeah. For Charlie Pickering, he's found a way to keep his work life, where he makes the weekly for the ABC with me, and home life with a wife and two kids, separated. I think I'm less public than I was when we first knew each other. Mm. And the privacy of my family has become more important over time. But I think that's part of what they mean to me, is like they're my space away from this public-facing version of what I do. And so for me, it's just unencumbered by any thought of what someone else might be thinking. So it's a space where I can be myself and so the, you know, the the experience of it is pure, but it's also the place just, I mean, they're just three incredible people. And to get to know three incredible people at a level of detail that you don't get to know anyone else in the world. Mm. I mean, you know your parents pretty well because you grew up with them. But it's actually, you, that's nothing compared to how well you know your, one of your kids. And to watch, to watch kids grow up is just a phenomenal, a phenomenal thing because you see every detail and you kind of blink and you realise that they're, they're heaps bigger. They're, they're big. You know, the first time you, you have to really work to lift them up and you just go, man, this feels like it happens so quickly. But, mm. but actually, the you know, the... The days are long and the years are short with kids. And also just the way that you get to know your your partner. It's on a completely cause on a completely different level because you like I'm in awe of my wife. I'm in awe of um the level at which she works professionally is just bananas to me. Like it's a level of quality and intellectual rigor that I don't have to, you know, meet with my work. And, which is a relief. Yeah, thank God. Um, but the then the magic of seeing how she is as a mother with with the boys is like it's just f- like it pushes me to be a better parent seeing how good she is as a parent and you know I, I imagine it's like when you well it's similar to you I try harder at work seeing how hard you work mm. and it's like if you're on a basketball team with Michael Jordan yeah, you, you tried you, you got to work pretty hard the benchmark is is raised 
Do you find parenting hard or easy? Both. Like it's the most joyous, like it's the most joyous thing in the world. Like the great moments as a parent are just awesome. But at the same time, we've said it before, the the only thing harder than the week is the weekend. Like you, you get to the end of the week and it's a Friday, you go, oh yeah, weekend. And then you go, oh shit, weekend. Like, yeah, it's full on. And it just doesn't let up. And there's no one to complain to and there's no option but to get it done. But it means that your priorities are so far down the list compared to everything to do with your kids. But that's just, that's just how it is. And, you know, I had a pretty good upbringing and I, <laughs> I was definitely, my parents' priorities were definitely well below mine for... 20 years, so that's fair enough. It doesn't take much in the juggle of family life to drop one or two balls. But what about when you're faced with something big, something genuinely life-changing, like a recurrent brain tumour? That's the reality for Jamila Rizvi. My husband's been extraordinary, steady and strong and calm and... um, not just my rock, but everyone's rock. Like he has had to support my parents, my sister, his parents, our friends through this too. And he's done it with aplomb while caring for a little boy. And I wonder if we're going to see more from my son. He was two and a half when I first got sick and he's six now. I wonder if we're going to see more as he gets older of how it's impacted him for the worse. But to be honest, the only thing we see is how it's impacted him for the better. How's that? He is hugely empathetic mm. for a six-year-old, like extraordinarily so. He is such a kind little boy who is concerned about others and worried about other people and he's the first one to help if someone's sick or hurting. And um, he's incredibly helpful to me on a day-to-day basis um, and so far seems pretty good. Jamila, who lives with her husband and six-year-old son, spent some of her lockdown writing a children's book called I'm a Hero Too. I asked her what her motivation for writing it was. It's a book about a kid living through COVID and I wrote it for him, to be honest. I wrote a story to help me explain to my son why we live in Melbourne, why we had to stay home for months and months and months. And instead of making him feel scared, I wanted to make him feel powerful, like he was staying home for a reason. He was doing a good thing that would help other people. How do you think the pandemic's affected little kids? I have, I have a six-year-old as well. I have a two-year-old and a 13-year-old. And it feels like it's done different things to all of them. But yeah, in your experience? I have found my son has become a bit of a homebody. Like he prefers to be at home. He wants to have lots of people around. He's really social but his preference is always, well, can they come to our house, which is a shift for him. We had to cancel his birthday party about two weeks ago because of the lockdown in Melbourne. It was his sixth birthday party. We had to cancel the party. We were building a cubby as his present so they weren't allowed to come and build it and his grandparents couldn't visit and nor could his aunt and uncle. So it was a lot of disappointment at once and he was so well adjusted about it, which should have made me proud but actually just made me really angry. Yeah, it's funny because I, I sometimes wonder whether there's a difference between them accepting it and being resigned to it, and I'm I'm often worried that it's the second. Yeah. I, I don't want him to, like, I, wanted, I almost wanted a tantrum. I almost wanted a this isn't fair so I could say, yeah, damn right, it's not fair. Mm. Um, 
but it's so normal for these COVID kids, you know, this disappointment and this restriction. That makes me really sad. COVID kids is a good name for a book. Yeah, I'd be pretty depressed writing that book. <laughs> In the book, kids. the main character, Artie, says that mum and dad are whispering and having conversations that are not for little ears. Is that something you do at your house? Do you protect Raph from pandemic-y things or...? I think we protect him from the depths of conversation. So we're pretty honest with him. That's sort of been our uh, approach to discussing hard things with him since he was two and a half and I got sick, really. Um, We've been really honest about uh, tough stuff, uh, but we've never been detailed. So we don't lie to him. We always tell him the truth, but we never go into a lot of detail. We'll hold the detail back for us to have conversations somewhere else. What, so that's like, what been, do you say detail? What do you mean? Like, So he knows that there's a pandemic. He knows that people have died. He knows that it's really dangerous, but he also knows we're safe here in our home. But, for example, we'd never have a conversation about the, the number of deaths today or a vaccine causing a blood clot and killing someone or a kid getting COVID um, and becoming really unwell. We would never have that conversation in front of him. Did you have the thing at your house where the, where ref? got obsessed by the numbers. We had every morning, like, little Evie be like, what are the numbers today? Yeah, yeah, we did. And I remember one day he said, oh, how many cases today, Mum? And I was, it was it was in the depths of that big lockdown, so it was like 200 and something. And he said, oh, yeah, how many deaths? That was like serious punch in the guts. Death and the passing of loved ones is a reality that we all have to face in our lifetime. But it can be complicated in the midst of a global pandemic, as Samantha Armitage sadly discovered. It's funny because at the age of 43, I sort of had to grow up quite a bit because I lost my mum. And so I was forced to think and forced to think about death. And then Rich, my husband, lost his elder sister about three months later. So we had a lot of death. We had a lot of tragedy all in one hit. And it was... um, Mm. It was, uh, I mean, obviously it was awful, but it was um, very confronting because I'd been very lucky for a long time and I hadn't really lost anyone close to me. And I don't know, when you lose your mum, you know, it's just I wasn't ready to announce to the world that we'd lost mum, but uh, I had a phone call from the publicist at seven saying it was about to be written in a newspaper someone had heard and they were going to write it and she suggested that I should put something out so that at least... The story was right. <laughs> In my experience, if you don't tell people what's going on, they'll just write bullshit. Um, mm. So I did put something on Sam social Armitage media. Sam had four mums. Oh, I know. Or, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the, I was the second gunman on the grassy knoll or something, you know. <laughs> and um, so I did put something out on socials just to say we'd lost mum and that was seven days after we'd lost her and I, I just didn't want to make it everybody's business. So that was another part. I mean, this is this is another part of you know being high profile that you have to go through all of that as well. But um, and it was to, and and as I said, the reason I tell you that story is that as I said at that time, um, mums are the core of your family; they're the heart of your family. And so when they go, your whole family goes upside down. Like it's a big shock. And um, 
I think, you know, a lot of people got in touch with me and, you know, I've lost my dad. I know what it's like. And you think, well, and dad, I love my dad. You know, dad's a divine too, but mums are, it's different when you lose your mum. It's really, you know, everybody's lost. I mean, they really feel like they're the straw of the drink. Well, they are. They, yeah, they are. And particularly for dad, you know, and he'd had a stroke at the same time, you know. So it's at one point last year, I had two parents in two different Sydney hospitals during COVID. So I was running in both in, mum was in palliative in St. Vincent's and um, dad was in, well, believe it or not, there's actually, he was in the, um, beyond the ICU in the real, real emergency department of Prince of Wales in the stroke unit, stroke ward. I mean, God mm. help me, if you've ever been to a stroke ward, that's a sobering experience. Oh. So I had dad in Prince of Wales and mum in St Vincent's and it was just, again, it was surreal. It was just the most extraordinary because I kept saying to people, but we're a healthy family. We've always been a healthy family. And then I nearly lost two of them in one week. And then mum managed to get out. Mum, mum, God love her, got a guard of honour at St Vincent's the day she walked out because she was in palliative and then she walked out and went home to Wagga and then she died in Wagga about three months later. Um, but she was a bloody tough woman and a battler. And so when you go through that experience, it's, um, I don't know, I mean, it's just extraordinary. It was just, I, I couldn't, it was, it was an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe it was happening to our family and I don't know how I got through it, but as the eldest child I sort of went into this kind of mode of organisation and, mm. you know, my brother and I would sort of, I'd say, I'll go to Prince of Wales today and Charlie would go to some, you know, we'd taken in turns because you could only get one person to the bedside and it was just a nightmare. So the COVID of that's pretty interesting. Like my, my grandmother is 98 and she's locked up at the moment because of COVID. It must have been quite sad that their, the twilight of the, the finish of their life, they had to deal with the pandemic. Mm. Mm. Well, I think, I, look, I think mum may have just got to a point where she thought, I can't go on anymore. I can't, um, you know, she'd been sick for a long time and she'd had an autoimmune disease that resulted in organ failure. And so I think she probably got to a point where she thought, oh, God, what is going on in the world right now, you know? She knew all her children were happy and I think she sort of just got to a point where she thought, I can't go on, I'm checking out. It affected me, um, well, obviously affected me privately greatly, but on air too, and that's where I really started to, um, there was one situation where a woman in Ballina was pregnant with twins and she lost one of the babies because she couldn't get across the border to a Brisbane hospital for treatment. And I remember Anastasia Palaszczuk saying at the time, Queensland hospitals are for Queenslanders. (laughs) And it was off the back of all of us being told that we're all in this together yeah. and, you know, all that bullshit at the start of it. No one was in it together was the truth of it. But I just saw red to a degree that I'd never as a journalist had actually, I'd always sort of separated myself from anything I was doing, any story, even the most horrific story. You know, I covered Paris terror attacks. I covered Christchurch mosque massacre. You know, you'd separate yourself because you have to. But it was something about that that I just saw red. And because I'd sort of... I had two parents in two hospitals and I couldn't get in to see either of them. And so I thought this woman has lost a baby because she can't Mm. get across a border to get into a hospital for help. That is just heartless. That's just playing politics. That is, there's no health, uh, health scenario there. That is not based on any Mm. kind of health advice. This was not a COVID issue. This was a keeping a baby alive issue. And I was so angry about that. So you felt like you let that spill into your journalism? 
Well, I, but I don't apologise for it because I, I, there were a lot of people out there who were trying to get in to see loved ones who couldn't get across borders, who were trying to bury parents who died in other states. Mm. You know, there's a lot of extra trauma around that stuff. Now, I understand that you can't just let people travel willy-nilly in scenarios like this, so there had to be boundaries uh, and policy around that. But for goodness sake, if somebody's had... Two co- five, well, what was it the other day? Five COVID tests and they're all negative and they're trying to get in to see their dying father and their father's in palliative care dying anyway. Let them in. There just seemed to be so much politics being played and no empathy um, and no sensible decisions based on, you know, uh, you know, do your lockdown or do, you know, have a COVID test and if it comes back negative, you should be allowed to see your loved ones. During this COVID madness, Charlie Pickering was lucky enough to be with his loved ones but it wasn't without its challenges. I had a pretty tough year last year with with all of it. I had a newborn baby in the mix and everything that comes with that. The fact is giving birth takes a real toll on... Especially with your anatomy. <laughs> really took a toll on my body. But it's like... They're, they're the So to be homeschooling one kid, having a baby in the middle of a pandemic, you know, a lot of the joy is taken out of a birth when you do it in a pandemic. Mm. Like, the, the, it's it's funny, you don't want to be one of the people going, oh, well, I, I had it hard. I had it hard in the pandemic. Everyone had it hard. But, like, um, so I basically, I went into self-isolation probably three weeks before our first lockdown or four weeks before our first lockdown in Melbourne because we were having a baby. And if I got COVID, I couldn't come to the hospital and be there for the birth of the birth of our kid for the birth of our child. And once we're in there, I wasn't allowed to leave the hospital and come back. You couldn't have family members visit. There were so many ways that the joy and community of giving birth was taken away. And and obviously there are so many parts of community that were taken away from everyone throughout the pandemic. But that was a really acute form because it's not like birthdays are every year or anniversaries are every year and you you feel like you can reschedule that. You can't reschedule a birth. You can't get that moment back. And to not be able to share that with family and, you know, that has a rippling effect in, in ways that it creates extra distance between you and your family and your friends and, and everyone. Do you feel like you've given your family your everything? No. And that's a little bit about not drinking as well. I can relate to that. You, you are less present when you drink. You are the best parent you can possibly be, the best husband partner you can possibly be when you're present and the nature of a human brain is you're not always going to be present sometimes you're like depending different people have different levels of anxiety or um the way their brains churn stuff that's not in front of them yeah it's quite hard being in the present it's it's incredibly hard but when you manage it it actually it's pretty good it's pretty good and you feel the benefits of it and it's funny i don't know about you but there are times when i I become aware that I've lost myself in the moment, and you realise, oh, hang on, that's I, paradoxical. Yeah, but no, <laughs> but that's but it's funny. It's like, oh man, I was really, I was really happy then. Like, the, the, it's actually when you lose yourself in the present that you are most happy. Mm. And like, like for me, like my one year old isn't hasn't been great at eating breakfast. I don't know if one-year-olds are, but I know they, that my... The whole, they, they I, do. I know my first... But give them Cocoa Pops. I love it. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's a sometimes food on a holiday. <laughs> but, sometimes um, food. Um, but 
so what I do is I I got a stack of his favorite books and I read with gusto while I'm feeding him. And if I'm reading, he'll be eating. The other morning I just caught myself and I was singing, you know, um, Five Little Ducks? Yeah, Five Little Ducks. Went, went out one, one got, I've got this amazing picture book version of it that is just so beautiful. Mm. But I am singing it with so much gusto and there's extra little characters in all the pictures and I've added little lyrics about each one. And so it's become a very elaborate musical production at, at mm. the breakfast table. Like Hamilton. Yeah, it is. It's it's a Lin Manuel production, and he's eating, and I'm singing Five Little Ducks. My six year old has started chipping in with extra roles within the and singing from the bench where he has his breakfast. Mm. He's got a part. Yeah, he's got a part, and he he gets very emotional when Sad Mother Duck went out. You know, when she goes out looking for them mm. when when there's no more ducks, and he does a weeping. He emotes very hard. It's quite beautiful, <laughs> and um. So anyway, we and there was just a, mo- a moment the other morning. I was like, I've lost myself here. I've completely lost myself in the moment. And I was like, I was very conscious that there weren't enough of those moments last year. Mm. And whether that was because I, like, I was just tired because we were in lockdown with homeschool and working from home, and you know, like, just there was something heavy, a heavy blanket over everything, or if it was because. I was separating myself from my life with booze a little bit mm. and then I was too tired in the morning. You know, like I was extra tired in the morning so it was hard to lose myself. Hard in- to do five little ducks when you're Mate, hungover. Yeah, it's very hard to not vomit around the third duck. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was – I realised how much better it is to be clear and present and enjoying it. I've just said parenting is hard. But the more times you're present, the easier it feels. Right. Doesn't yeah. feel like heavy lifting. So Charlie is trying to live in the present, but Abby Chatfield is thinking about the future. In the past five days, my friends and I in the group chat have all agreed to not have kids, so uh, <laughs> so I have to stick with the girls <laughs> because <laughs> we're all scared of the world ending in 20 years because of climate change, so we just decided to not do it. So now if I have kids, the girls will be mad at me. Uh, but I'm incredibly single and I, I'm i not sure. It, it changes like every couple of weeks. Yeah, right. Whether I want to have kids. it's Once you have them, they're pretty permanent. That's the thing, isn't it? Once you make the decision, they're, they're, they're alive. But the climate change thing is really interesting, what you just said then, because you're obviously worried about bringing a kid into this melting pot. In fact, I read the mm. other day that there's five countries in the Middle East that have all hit 50 degrees for the first time and I think they recorded the highest temperature in Antarctica that they've ever recorded. Oh, that's good. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. How do, you, <laughs> how do you sort of reconcile the, the climate change problem? Um, I mean, I sit on my couch and have panic attacks about it. I don't really – I don't think I have the ability to reconcile. I mean, I, I – I think I try my best to do to be as sustainable and eco-friendly as I can be, but I I don't think what I'm gonna. Hopefully, if we all if we all try to be sustainable, then we'd all fix the planet, right? But we need to have bigger bigger changes when it comes to policy and taxing mining companies and solar power and and I just think honestly, I've kind of resigned myself and I think I can't do anything, so I just may as well not have kids and just try and be happy before we all die in like 30 years. <laughs> so is that the thing? Because 
about the <laughs> about the kids because for me, climate change is very much about my three kids. In that, in thirty mm. or forty years, they're going to have to to live in a in a much more inhospitable world. But you don't even know if you're going to have kids. Mm. So, what makes you panic? I don't want to have. I don't. I in thirty or forty years, I'm just going to be fifty. Like I'm not going to be that. I like. I will still be. I'll still be kicking it. And I and I it makes mm. me panic thinking about the fact that I won't have the same quality of life that my that my mum had or that people who are even like twenty years older than me had. Um, and I also don't want to have kids to take care of in that situation. Like I'm imagining myself like running from a fire with these two twerps. Like I don't want to. Like, I want to just think about my friends and have a wine and watch the world burn. Like that's that's kind of our agreement that we had was we're going to sit on a porch when the world's ending and just drink wine and watch it all happen and die together. And I think a lot of a lot of people on the left my age are starting to in the past like six months are starting to have these conversations where we're like, do we do we do it? Like and it and it it's and it's not even. I think there's also some sentiment that I've that I've. I posted about my friend had a baby recently and I posted saying, oh, I want I want a kid because of him because he's so cute. And someone DM'd me like having a real go at me saying that it's selfish to want kids. And I don't, and, you know, and that's like I understand that I that idea and it is coming from the same place that I'm coming from but the way that I'm thinking of it is, isn't like, oh, it's selfish to have kids. It's more like I don't want to be responsible for a kid when the world is ending and I also, I, I would rather not be like the guilt, the, the fear that you must feel. You've got three. Mm. You've got three yeah. that you must be terrified for. It's not like, oh, it's selfish to have kids. It's more like I'm terrified to have kids and I don't want to feel yeah. sick about them growing up. So I'd rather just be, like I was saying at the start, I guess just selfish and just be like, okay, I'll just take care of myself while the world's ending. And that, <laughs> <laughs> and that is so grim. Fucking um, It's so grim. And like my 20s have been the pandemic and then the world will start burning soon. So yeah. sick life. What's your worst memory? Um, getting dumped on The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> Is it really? Um, no, probably, honestly, um, my, I had an abortion in 2018. And after that abortion, my ex-boyfriend didn't uh, yelled at me afterwards and then didn't uh, stay with me that night. So that was probably a shit time, some would say. He went out with the boys. <laughs> Fuck, that's horrific. Yeah, and then told me I was pathetic. I was like crying, holding onto his shirt, being like, please don't leave me. I've never asked you for anything in our entire relationship. And he was like, you're being pathetic, baby. And like pulled my hand off. <laughs> mm. How was that? I mean, it's almost hard to, to ask a question about abortion. Mm-hmm. No. It must be one of the most vexed decisions. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – I – I found out that I was pregnant when I was on a I was on a work meeting. I called the clinic before I called my ex boyfriend, um, but it was like so. I like it, I knew that I wanted that I definitely didn't want to have a kid, particularly with him. I mean, for obvious reasons. After how he reacted afterwards, yeah, he seems like a winner. Yeah, yeah, we stayed together for a couple of years after that, on and off though, of course. Um, but it was like it was it was quite it was quite traumatic. The abortion. I mean, I think the biggest thing, the hardest thing is the is the hormone change afterwards and then like the guilt that you feel. But um, yeah, that night was probably like the worst. And I didn't tell mum, but I was living at mum's house. So I I was mum didn't know what was going on into mum until she found out through the media that I had an abortion. Cause I was talking about it on a podcast, like four years later, three years later. How did she react? 
oh, she was just upset that I couldn't talk to her about it. She was, she's, she was like, oh, my, I, I'm so upset that my daughter was, she's like, you know, my, my darling, my darling was so upset and you shouldn't talk to me about it. You know, Laura, saint. Do you still feel guilty or? Um, no, but then sometimes yes. Like, like, uh, not overall no, like 99% of the time no, but then like something will happen like, um, you know, or I'll think about what if I'm infertile now and I can't have kids, you know, if I change my mind about the whole climate change thing, if like what, that's what or I the, feel. The, what, the WhatsApp pact? Yeah, the, <laughs> yes, exactly. If that's not as binding as you thought you know, it might be. I know, I know. I'm like, if the girls, if one of them have a kid. Um, but, yeah, I sometimes feel guilty about it. Not really anymore because I think, again, speaking about it so much and being like an advocate for for pro-choice, like I I think that that's helped me as well. I'm talking to so many girls who've had abortions and, but yeah, it's a weird one. It's like you feel guilty, but then I think about it and like I, my life would be so different. Like I would have a four-year-old and I would probably still be in a job that I hated being in a ball of rage every day. So, I mean, it all works out. But if there's one thing that mums can be relied upon for, it's for those little pearls of wisdom that we can carry with us always. Jamila Rizvi, if you could give your little boy one bit of advice going forward from everything you've learned either this year or in general what would you give it him no one is thinking about you as much as you are <laughs> that's so <laughs> next time on brains trust we're continuing our f word theme and diving headlong into faith it's time to talk religion ideology and beliefs I was raised in the church. I've read the New Testament very carefully many times, quite convinced that there was no passage in anywhere in the Bible about vaccines. You know, when people start making statements that Jesus doesn't want you to get vaccinated or Jesus thinks this or Jesus, I mean, it's so untethered from the actual sacred texts of the religion that there is no response. Brains Trust is presented by me, Chris Walker, produced by Chris Marsh, Carly Humby and Sam Kavanagh. See you next time as we continue the conversation with our Brains Trust. Listener.